If you enjoy this conversation with Alex Auerbach, we are launching a Substack newsletter in January 2022 called Unfair Advantage. In Unfair Advantage, we're going to explore the intersection of psychology and coaching, the science, the questions, the practical applications, and how you can rapidly accelerate your ascent to the top of your competition and more importantly, stay there. To keep up to speed with when the newsletter launches, head to codyroyal.com forward slash unfair and register your email. In the meantime, enjoy Where Others Won't 85 with Toronto Raptors Director of Wellness and Development, Alex Auerbach. Alex Auerbach, how are you, mate? I'm great. It's good to see you. Excited to do this with you, finally. I know. I know. It's great to see you. And uh, yeah, I, I guess bring one of these conversations online and, and record it because we have them anyway. That's why I'm so looking forward to this because I know where this can go and some of the ideas that can come out of it. But I'll just throw us straight into the fire here. One of the things that we've always talked about is, is kind of bringing together the ideas of a, a head coach and a psychologist in terms of creating a really high performing and dynamic organizations and environments. And most of the things we talk about or text about tend to be in, in that kind of realm. And then, you know, within that, one of the ideas that we've really bandied around is this idea of high performance knowledge work and of psychologists and coaches and executives within those environments being knowledge workers, but really at this next level of the traditional office worker where, you know, there's really priming that needs to be done and even rewiring of the, the brain to really operate at that high performing level. So, I mean, I'll just throw it over to you, but where does your mind go initially around that idea that, that we've been throwing about? Yeah. Well, I think we have to start by giving you credit for the terminology. Cause I think I only latched onto it when I heard you deliver that in a presentation um, and it, it's resonated with me. And so where my mind goes is, is really to like, huh, that, that is where if we could get, you know, executives, coaches, leaders in these organizations to really identify with that concept and to really internalize that and start to think of themselves and their own performance as critical to the performance of the players and the overall organization, we might really be onto something there. You know, um, I think that so often there's, a strong tendency, I'm not sure it's a preference, but it's definitely a tendency to prioritize player health and wellness and, and rightfully so, right? Like they're the ones out there sort of delivering on, on the floor or on the field. And so I, I think that really matters, but oftentimes that comes at the expense of the performance of the people around them. And it doesn't always have to, um, you know, there are certainly sometimes when, you know, coaches or staff will have to make sort of a, a higher level sacrifice or lifestyle decision that um, may not be the best in the short term, but oftentimes that sort of bleeds into just the, the way things are done here, if you will. And so to me, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, that's, that's what I really latched onto about this idea is like, I think if you start to think of yourself as a high performance knowledge worker, it does change your priorities a little bit. It does reorganize your goals a little bit. Um, but th that's just my kind of gut take. I mean, you, like I said, you were the one who kicked this off. So like for you, I think I would pitch that back to you. Like when you originated that concept, what, what was the idea behind it? How did you come up with that terminology? What resonated for you? Yeah, it was a little bit by mistake. Like I, it's not a natural area for me to really think about you know, and maybe to back up a little bit. So knowledge work is a, is a Druckerism, a Peter Drucker, famous management 
guru, let's call him an, an author and, you know, came up with this idea that, you know, knowledge work was essentially where knowledge or the knowledge of the workers, you know, added to the assets available to an organization. And so what he was describing was the modern office worker, you know, marketers and, and accountants and consultants and things like that. And so their knowledge is really powerful uh, as assets for an organization. But then, yeah, when I kind of saw that idea and, and what I'd been noodling around in terms of it was really about depletion, I was looking at it the other way around and what depletion of the brain does to knowledge and what it does to communication and what it does to awareness and what it does to decision-making. And so, yeah, I kind of started backwards a little bit. And then when I started to look at it forwards in terms of what we could do with it, if we identified as performers and said, well, you know, the the title of the chapter is you're hired for your brain, you know, and if you're hired for your brain, then you're obligated to, protect your brain. So athletes are hired for their bodies, their athletic capacity and capability, whereas coaches and executives are hired for their brains. And so it kind of begets them to start to have to look, look after it. I I think it's interesting that you came at it from sort of like the, the inverse a little bit and looked at it from, from a depletion perspective. But I think everything you said just resonates so much for me. Um, you know, and I can remember talking with coaches or, or people I've worked with in, in the varied organizations I've been a part of and sort of hitting on like, you know, when you're making a decision about a, a player to, you know, say, go after in recruiting, for example, like, don't you think you would better evaluate that player if you were well-rested? Like, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't you see this player differently if you slept eight hours versus three hours? And is there is there something to that? Like, does that, you know, at all shade the way that you do this work? And then think about, you know, obviously you can extrapolate that to decisions on the field or decisions on the court. Um, and it, I, I think it's some way, like, it's interesting because it's kind of like counter sport culture a, a bit, right? It is, it's the idea that, like, there's so much embedded in sport that we just got to grind it out forever. And then eventually by grinding it out, we'll, we'll sort of like make diamonds and that might be possible. Um, but it, it might also be that you might just find diamonds without doing that uh, if you could look more clearly. And so it just, it's fascinating to me that you arrived there from a coach's perspective too, because you, I would imagine we're probably facing some of those pressures that a lot of coaches face, which is sort of like, you know, some of the cliches, right? If you're not working, the other opponent's working and outworking you, um, you know, you're responsible for this group of people and your well-being rests in their hands and they look up to you, you know? So I'm curious kind of like what that shift was like for you when you came up with this idea, you piece these ideas together and you're living in a world where you're facing the pressures that push against that. Like, how did you make sense of that? Yeah, I probably subliminal, subliminally knew that this was going on. And the reason is that in my sport of Aussie rules, there's essentially no such thing as tournaments. So we play leagues in Australia. And then I was a tournament-based coach with the national program. And so that whole world was even very foreign to me. So going to a place for two weeks and playing five games in that stretch and doing all your review, all your prep, uh, all of your training, all of your analysis, all of your stats on two day increments was just so foreign to me in general. (laughs) And, and I, the only way that I could think of to get through it was to just plow through it. But like, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. So in 2017, when we went to Melbourne, I was, in the most bizarre space I think I've ever been in as a coach in that I was so exhausted just getting the team onto the plane to get to Melbourne and then so anxious for the the entire three weeks we were there. Like I was having to drink alcohol to get myself to sleep, which meant that I was not sleeping well and and getting up early because I was thinking and then literally so that you your day is already 
you know, in a, in, <laughs> in a bizarre place when you're awake, um, you know, again, living in a hotel, nutrition, poor, um, having to get basically, yeah, like massage almost at the end of every day to try to get some sort of, you know, state of sleep <laughs> that's then yeah. based on, based on the alcohol that you've tried to consume to take your mind off things to, and it just becomes this cycle. And the only way that you, you can, even if you recognize that the only way you can think of is to try to just continue to smash through the wall you're like, well, I may as well either try to go harder at this or, um, and so that's kind of what I was thinking of personally, as, as I was thinking through this concept and just how the impact is felt by the players. So your ability to make those decisions, particularly in game, really high stress environments. And, you know, again, I was thinking about it from a depletion perspective and what we know about the brain is the, the astronomical effects of, of depletion and tiredness on awareness, communication and decision-making the three <laughs> things we have to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, if you boil it down, basically the head coach does those three things and those three things only. And, and you just, you're already setting yourself behind the eight ball. And so, yeah, maybe all of that is to say, like having put myself through it, no one else was to blame for that. Having put myself through it, maybe I was uh, resonating with it a little bit stronger than than others. Um, and again, my my circumstances being tournament based is I got to stop at the end of it and look back at it and go, holy shit, what did I do? Whereas coaches that are in season and it's just straight into draft and straight into the next one don't really have that time to stop. Right. Yeah, your, your story, I can just imagine, resonates with several coaches. I mean, there have obviously been, you know, more popular sort of public um, coaches who have, have come forward about, you know, issues with substance use and things like that. And, um, you know, I think the lifestyle is incredibly challenging. But what, what you said at the end really struck me, which was this idea that, like, actually by just pushing through, you were sort of behind the eight ball. And I think so much of sport both for for players and coaches and staff is the idea that somehow pushing through is is better always and i actually just read this interesting article is about um stress mindsets in navy seals and it turned out that you know believing that stress was enhancing was the best mindset a navy seal could have their their um, teammates liked them more. They performed better. They persisted longer. Um, believing stress was harmful was obviously not great, but there was this third mindset they looked at, which was this, this kind of like sport mindset, this like will can get me through anything, like just keep pushing. And it, it actually turned out that that didn't help performance, but it actually made your teammates like you less too. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because it was sort of like, it, it's, spoke to the disconnect that these seals had with like the reality of the rest of the experience. And I think when you talk about kind of the impact on players and some of these interpersonal dynamics, you know, that piece is really interesting. Like players are incredibly smart and perceptive, you know, so they know when something is up um, and they may not know exactly what it is, but they have a sense when, you know, decision-making is off or coaches and aware of something. Um, and, and so I think that's a really interesting point because it's almost like maybe part of the shift is how do you get people to see that this kind of approach puts you ahead and not behind, but everybody else might be doing it a different way. And I think that that seems to be like the scary part. Big time. That is the hurdle. And I, I don't think there can be any more meaningful research or literature into any of these areas around performance and, and the mental space and, and team dynamics and the impact of it. And for us to have to sit there objectively and say, yes, there is an issue here, but yeah, the, the next steps I see are an acceptance of the role of a performer, which could be a really critical juncture in that what the acceptance does 
is it creates conversations that haven't happened before. So what does that mean for a coach? What do they present to the team in terms of the way that they're going to be coached, the way that the coach will show up in the environment or even better, when will they not be in the environment because they're at home in bed <laughs> Yeah, and, and why? And if there's a group that that should make sense to, it should be elite athletes where they're going through that same experience as well of having to live into performance. And they understand that, look, whether I do it or not, I should be at home at this time in bed. And I know the impact of an afternoon nap before a 7 PM game. And, and if I feel clearer, I reckon coach will as well, if he gets to have one and yeah. So again, there, there might be a, a middle point of just those conversations coming from the acceptance of that as a core part of being a, an elite leader that might generate some really interesting conversations that just haven't ha happened before. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that idea because there, there is something really powerful in the athlete being able to identify with the coach in that way and the coach being able to identify with the athlete in that way. And there's sort of like shared experience around the pursuit of excellence, right? Like we are both trying to be great at what we do. And in large part, it requires a lot of the same things like good nutrition, sleep, exercise, structure, uh, a positive work environment. Like there are a lot of things that, that would help both parties be successful. Um, and yet, you know, those conversations don't happen. Maybe, and maybe that's a vulnerability-based issue. I mean, I'm sure they happen. They, they do happen at some places. But by and large, I'm not aware of a ton of people having those conversations, let's say. And so is that like a, is that a vulnerability issue on the coach's part or the athlete's part? Is that sort of a larger sport culture issue? Is it a mix of both? I just think that's like a really, you know, people might miss the sort of powerful impact that kind of connection could have and that resonance around we're both sort of chasing the same thing, but we're chasing it in, in different areas. And it, and it may also, you know, I'm just thinking kind of downstream, but is that the kind of thing that can reduce conflict between coaches and athletes, whether there's conflict around selection decisions or conflict around practice schedules or playing time, you know, it's sort of like a deeper appreciation of what everyone's after because it goes beyond the sort of outcome of each game. The other thing it makes me think of, though, which I guess we could address as part of the larger cultural conversation is sort of like, you know, where do those expectations come from that coaches or management will be always on, always accessible? And, you know, what data is there to support that that produces better outcomes? Um, or is that just the way we've always done it? Is it a mix of both? You know, I, I genuinely don't know. But I think that would be an important piece of this to address as well, knowing that, in fact, the people probably making those decisions or structuring that environment would probably also benefit from the same things, right? Like you would probably also benefit from some sleep and, and good nutrition and all that. So it's just, I mean, there's so many layers to it, but there seems like there's this thread that people could really connect around in terms of, you know, wanting to be great at what they're doing. Yeah. And just to build on that, I think part of that acceptance process and that communication becomes, look, there has to be realistic conversations. We're not talking about doing nothing or doing significantly less. Yeah, yeah, we're not, yeah. we're, and I, I position it like this. We are not talking about balance. In professional sport, there is no such thing. What we're talking about is greater balance. So greater balance than we've had. So the, you know, the, the seesaw or what do you guys call it? Teeter totter. Uh, what, <laughs> what do Americans call that thing? The, the, uh, I think seesaw or teeter totter both work. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever you call that thing, it's, it's moving it closer to the middle, not to the middle. And, and, and so, you know, that's part of it too, but that then, again, creates a, a conversation around, and maybe these conversations haven't happened either is, you know, coach to athlete conversations around 
well, what do you actually need from me? And, and why, like, why is it helpful? Do you need all the video? Do you not want all the video? Do, do we need to cut up these particular patterns? Is, is 10 defensive principles for the next opposition, is it too many? Do we even need that? And so you can kind of really start to see how a structured environment can also facilitate this sense of, of greater balance and, and coaching performance as well as athlete performance because you're, you're kind of forced into these conversations around what is necessary and what is kind of superfluous because to your point, the coach that I had when I was growing up, he did that. So I've just built on top of it and made more of it under the assumption that more is better. Yeah. I think that that last point is critical, you know, the assumption that more is better. And I think it's also, you know, you raised an excellent point, which is that I think sometimes when people think about restructuring life in this way, they do immediately jump to an extreme, which is going from say like a hundred working hours a week, to 20 working hours a week. And, I, and I, I think you're right. Like the greater balance concept or, or one that I've played around with is the idea of harmony. Like, you know, the pursuit of balance in a pure sense, 50-50 work and home for, for anyone that's pursuing really high level goals is probably impossible um, and, and may not actually be helpful, right? In the pursuit of those goals, like you may need a little bit of doggedness. You may need a little bit of extra time and commitment um, to, to really reach that. And that is okay. Um, but that can tip into a space of disarray or, you know, um, unhelpfulness, right? Whether that's impacting family life or impacting how you communicate with your players, right? You communicate with the staff around, you know, all of those are sort of adverse consequences of that over pursuit or over pushing of what that is. And it, it reminds me a little bit of like, you know, when people grip really tightly to something, like inevitably you get fatigued and you have to let go. And you could actually persist longer if you sort of relaxed your grip a little bit and held on. Like we're not saying completely let go. We're just saying sort of like, ease up and breathe into it and, and find that harmony. And so I think that that point is, is really important. Um, and I guess like, you know, I want to, I'm going to push because I think you've got such an interesting like experience with this. Like, is there anything, if you think back to that sort of tournament experience, is there anything that could have happened environmentally, like for the people around you or the, you know, not knowing fully the organizational structure you were in, like the sort of powers that be that were, guiding you toward what you needed to accomplish at this tournament is there anything they could have done environmentally that would have allowed you to pursue that greater harmony um that's a great question i think the answer is always yes um now whether at that time in my coaching journey i would have been open to a lot of that i also don't know um and I still think a lot of the mistakes were of my own making rather than some sort of environmental factor that could have been solved with, I mean, more resources, you can always say yes, but then you start to enter the question of where is the tipping point of, of helpfulness versus just throwing human bodies at something, um, which again could have created more stress because that's just more management for the head coach. <laughs> right? right. So uh, yeah, I mean, the, the answer is yes, but then, yeah, you, you start to very quickly get into that. When does that then put you back into that same state of depletion and just having to slog through by managing more different stuff? Right. So, right. And, and, and maybe that even raises an interesting point in terms of where that actual legitimate performance zone sits around the size of, of things and the size of staffs. And, uh, you know, because again, we're, we're kind of over the last 20 years, if you look at the growth in sporting departments, in organizations, it is off the charts. It's like Bitcoin off the charts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that like throwing humans at the problem to me doesn't always solve the problem. There's actually a lot of, uh, there's a lot of innovation that comes from even 
potentially being slightly under-resourced and having to decide what's important and having to have tough conversations about what really is important. Um, like I, I know you follow soccer closely. You know, I look at someone like Brentford and what they've done, that the analytics piece is, is very interesting from a, a, a nice news story. And I really like that side of what they've done. But what I'm really interested in is they've taken that same approach and brought it into how they manage the club and done things like we're not going to have an academy before I think it's under 21s or under 19s. So, you know, they, again, resource restrictions, don't have endless money. It's literally they're, they're surrounded by Chelsea, Fulham, uh, and I think Queen's Park Rangers. Um so they, they're just like, well, we're not even going to compete in that because we think we can garner better use of our resources over here and become, you know, uh, like late investors in players rather than early investors. And so now if they had all the resources in the world and all the money in the world, they make a different decision. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think, in my mind where I was going or thinking about what the question was like, I wonder if someone just needed to give you permission. You know, I wonder if someone needed to just give you permission to be like harmonious in what you were doing. Uh, but then I hear all these other questions that you're sort of raising, which I think are also valid, right? Like one of the things that I think is, is tough sometimes in sport is, um, you know, it's kind of like a, a lot of fields I think have gone this way toward, you know, really specialized people um, in in specific roles to solve really specific problems. And, and that's also valuable. Like there is merit to, to those positions, but you know, it does create managerial challenges for the people who are sort of one layer above that now managing a larger headcount. And um, you know, I think I think that's relevant too. And your point about sort of resourcing and, and innovation, I think is is interesting. And I know you know, Ben Littleton wrote a, an awesome book called Edge about all these European soccer clubs who, you know, pursued these kind of unique competitive advantages in large part based on the resources they had or where they were geographically or what was available to them. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think that that's a valid sort of like way, way of looking at it too. Um, you know, and I think that that speaks to sort of like the identity Brentford's creating, right? Like this is how they're, they're sort of building their program and what they're standing on and um, they're finding creative ways to do it. Um, but I, I, you know, we're sort of going down two paths, I guess, but I think it's, it's interesting to sort of consider like the, the role of the resourcing and supporting the head coach. It's also interesting to consider the role of the resourcing in terms of the identity of the club and what that means for the larger sort of like how people are functioning. Um, because I do think under-resourced probably also means overworked a little bit. Um, and overworked might not be bad. It might, it might not be, uh, it might not be super harmful, but it may not be optimal either, you know? And I, and I think that's like, the trade-off between fine and good is, is actually pretty big, you know, um, or, or fine and great is, is pretty big. And, and so I think that point is, is also worth sort of unpacking a little bit. Talking of identity, just to loop those ideas together, and then I want to change direction a little bit, but you, yeah, yeah. you can, you can also create small and mighty as a mindset off the back of that. And I think that into itself can help. And again, like that, that's the opposite of huge and endless. <laughs> that's not a, that's not a kind of a mindset that people easily get behind necessarily. Um, so yeah, very interesting and, and nuanced and yeah, there is a middle ground in there. Uh, I want to, yeah, come back to really your role and you know, sports psychology in general and how we can potentially move the needle in my world around things like wellness and uh, even just general psychological principles, more so ingrained in both our culture, but also our, our culture coaching practice and how that can really help move the needle in terms of some of the things that we're even talking about, but obviously more so for our athletes and the, the impact it can have on them and their performance. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a broad, it's a broad subject. There's a lot of places we could go with it. I think I would, I would push you a little bit. I would challenge you a little bit on the idea that, that I think that coaches can benefit from this stuff too, you know, and I know you know that, but I think, um, you know, we're sort of focusing on athletes and I think that's a great way to take it, but to also know that, that many of the same principles would apply to any coach or executive who thinks of themselves as a high performer. Right. And I think, you know, to me, ultimately, this is kind of the starting point of, of really, really high level performance, you know, to get to the NBA, for example, right. You do need a baseline of physical ability. Um, there, there is just a reality that there's like a, a physical cutoff essentially, right. Um, that, that you've got to meet and, and, um, a level of skill and, you know, prior knowledge and experience is valuable and intelligence. And, and those things are, are really important. Um, you know, and I think that that also bleeds into like it does, I think, to reach the very peak of what you want to do, it does does require a bit of work on the mindset, too. Yeah. And as an extension of that, and hopefully this is that entry point to more consideration around this, I think the most interesting idea from a coaching perspective, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, is really getting into things like training design. Uh, and practice design using those psychological principles as the base for the design rather than the tech and tack, which is what it currently is. So we're just trying to, we use drill as uh, we're just going to drill this particular skill or this technical knowledge into the players based on them running past these cones. But the next level of it, I think, starts to become a psychological base that builds that technical and tactical ability as well, but really it's, it's got a performance mindset idea underpinning the whole thing. I love it, man. I love it because I think, I think you're spot on and there are so many layers to that, right? There's the layer of like skill acquisition and, and real learning, right? Like it is the player actually absorbing what you're asking them to absorb by repeating this, this drill, for example, over and over again. Again, or is this just sort of like a part of practice that we do because we think we should do it and, and we believe that it might translate? Um, is there a real clear link between what we're asking players to do in practice and what we're asking them to do in games? Are we structuring the environment in a way that creates mental states that might parallel games and practice? So, for example, like there's a lot of really interesting research out there around circadian rhythms and how you know, they rise and fall and peak at certain points. And so are we practicing at a time when say an athlete's in a little bit of a lull and then what does that do for focus? And is that going to translate to now like a hyper aroused activated sport environment, right? Those are things that are really important for people to think about. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, we've gone through a lot of, you know, sports psychology, I think is kind of like the latest sports scientists to the, to the table. Um, you know, at, at first, I think it was strength and conditioning and then athletic training and then nutrition and, um, you know, and consistent with sort of like Western health ideals, right? The, the mind is the last part to come around. But, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of influence in this in this space and there's a lot we can offer. And so, you know, I think that piece is, is really, really important. And then you're right, we can get into, you know, what is the kind of optimal state for performing this particular skill? And what do we want you to be thinking and feeling? And how do we want to direct your attention? And um, how can we make sure you're acquiring this in the most helpful way? And similarly, like you can extend it to interpersonal relationships, you can extend it to um, the team as a whole, like there's just so much room for the influence of how we're performing, behaving, connecting, um, to really influence the outcome of, of the team. Um, and I, I think, you know, I'd be curious from your perspective, like as a coach who knowing you didn't have as many resources, perhaps as you would have liked, like for you, if you were dreaming big about the role of a sports psychologist in your program, what would that look like? That's a great question. So I know the answer immediately, but um, I haven't seen many do it. And that is that. I see the optimal position for a sports psychologist to essentially sit beside the head coach as a subject matter expert 
and essentially coach the coaches. So the delivery still comes through the, the coaches. So the head coach and the assistant coaches, but the, the research and the ideas around that activation essentially come through the, the psychologist. So I, I come to Alex and I'm like, what was that? What was that research point that you talked about, about the seals or how do I, how do I talk to this athlete about that concept that you mentioned last week? Like, what are the key points that I need to get across to him or her? And then I still go and deliver it, but it's informed by the, the psychologist who can, again, specialize in being an expert and researching the, the latest things that we can grab onto and create an advantage out of. And the reason I think about it like that is a couple of reasons. One, I'm a massive fan more of the integration model of, you know, infusing psychology into the, the things that we already use. But then also I'm interested in moving sports psychology away from the idea of the white lab coat in the, in the room and the kind of clinical, again, that's a, it's a social thing that we just immediately jump to light bulb couch white lab coat, you know, notepad. And I want to move it away from that and say, there's a bunch of functional people with really applied skills that we can, that we can utilize. And so maybe there's a little bit of just imagery there that it, it, it stems from, you know, bringing sports psychology actually out into the, into the, into the light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you're you are <laughs> preaching to the choir, my friend. I would, I'm I'm very glad I haven't had to wear my my white lab coat for several years. Um, and I think you're spot on. There, I mean, there's just so everything has everything is behavior based, right? Psychologists are experts in human behavior. All behavior has meaning. Everything that's happening in a sport environment is something that a psychologist can contribute to. Right. And, and people have different specialties or areas of interest. And so sports psychologists have this really unique ability to contribute in this particular environment with an understanding of the complex dynamics, pressures, um, team dynamics, you know, those things. And so I, I love how you're thinking about it, because I think there's so much room for um, people in that field to make a big difference in the overall experience of, of not just the athletes, but also the coaches, the staff that surround them. Um, because this is a person that's going to think about kind of holistic human health and, and wellness and um, what it would mean to get an extra hour of sleep or hour with family as much as it would mean to get an extra hour of practice and how those things might um be mutually beneficial, right? It's not, it's not necessarily you're trading one for the other. You're sort of doing one to enhance the other and vice versa, right? There's ways that these things can work together, but we have the ability to really give voice to that and think about that and, and sort of walk people through it. And, um, you know, I think Ted Lasso has been an interesting sort of, um, exposing of, of the role. I'm not sure it's, it's entirely hundred percent accurate, but it's not, that's not the least accurate thing. And I'm just glad to see, like, I'm glad to see that they, they had her come to practice, right? Because I think that kind of thing, um, while it may not seem like a big deal to say a coach who's obviously going to be at every practice, you know, for a sports psychologist, that's data, right? What I see happen at practice is data about the work that I'm doing with the entire organization. And so if you take away that access to that data, you're limiting the impact this person can have and their ability to help you, right? And, and ultimately, you know, I think you've talked about the white lab coat. I think there's been a degree to which people have been intimidated by the involvement of a psychologist or fearful that it will mean, you know, the psychologist is going to have all this confidential information and they can't share anything. And so they're going to know things I don't know. And if I don't have the information, something's going to go wrong. And all that is, is I think, normal to be afraid of. But, you know, what it means for the psychologist to be in the role that you're describing or involved and really integrated in the organization means that we can commit to the coach's goals with the same degree of intensity and authenticity that the coaches can. And all that means is we bring a really unique special set of skills to bear on those goals, right? I'm never pulling against what the organization is going for, right? We all want to win. Like, 
what what would be the point of being here, right? If if winning wasn't at least part of that, right? And so all I can do is bring my unique skill set to bear on winning and the health and, and wellness of the people I work with. And I think that that's true of all sports psychologists. And so um, I, I like the way you're thinking about it. And I hope that we can sort of push the needle there because there's you you hit on so many things we can contribute to internal communication, right? Working with coaches, working with staff, working with players. We haven't talked about um, talent development, talent selection, right? There are so many places where this voice really matters. And, you know, oftentimes it's the psychological that ends up being, you know, sort of the ultimate barrier to say a player reaching their full potential or does contribute to how much playing time a player does or doesn't get um, or how people feel in the organization about a particular player or a coworker, right? If that stuff is a huge factor. And so to have it woven in, I just, I just think is hugely important. I'm going to get off my, my soapbox now, but, um, but you know, this stuff really matters. To <laughs> well, I'll put a full stop on that because the, the standout quote from the Alex Ferguson documentary by far was him saying psychology is someone else's word. I just call it management. And what he's saying there is actually something quite profound in that, he merely sees himself as a psychologist that works with footballers. And so it is inextricably linked to the role of a manager. You know, obviously that's a soccer term, but a coach, a head coach. And so he saw his role as that. And again, I, I, I kind of, I like to draw back to, people like him and I talk about coaching coaches and how Pep Guardiola has one and Eddie Jones has one. And the reason I draw back to those examples is because we look to these kind of oracles for what they're doing in so many factors, like their tactics. And you can find every Pep Guardiola drill in a book or on YouTube or whatever. But then there are these other things that are, that are in there that are really important as well. And when you start to think about why they have said that, why they have structured their coaching environment that way, why, why is Alex Ferguson talking about management and psychology as, as inextricably linked? What, like, why does he think that? And when you start to interrogate those, you start to get to some really profound answers about maybe where we can all sharpen our our ideas up a little bit around things, you know, like this. That That is one of the best quotes I've heard in a, in a while. I, I love that because I think it's, it's spot on and it speaks to the very first thing we started this conversation with, right? Which is these really, really elite coaches thinking of their own performance as important to their team's performance, thinking of their own health and wellness as important to their organization's performance um, and thinking about the role of the real human factor in how all of these organizations go out and deliver what they do. Um, and so I, I love that because it speaks to both his, his management style, <laughs> which I think is, it sounds like is, is fairly unique, um, but also, you know, the value he does place on, managing himself to a degree, right? And thinking about what it means for him to be able to perform. And I think the best coaches that I've been around are are not the coaches that are grinding it out until 2 a.m. and then waking up at four and then hoping that everything comes together on the practice field because they can't see straight. It's the coaches who wake up and meditate and do yoga and exercise and spend 20 minutes with their family and then show up to work and and are able to be fully immersed at work and then go home and then fully immersed at home, right? That are, are doing these things. And then they extrapolate that idea to their staff, right? They extrapolate that idea to the other people around them and appreciate that if this works for me, this might help somebody else. And I can extend that sort of managerial principle outward. So yeah, I think, I think that quote's going to live somewhere in my office or something. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll punctuate that again because uh, you you just hit on something perfect as well in that, and I wrote about this a little bit in the tough stuff around the recognition that you as the head coach and the impact that you have on your assistants and the other staff, particularly around something as simple as going home is huge. So you give 
essentially authorization in your behavior for others to either do what you're doing, i.e. go home at a reasonable hour, or they have to stay in the office too, because no, no intern that's cutting up tape for an NBA team is going home before the head coach if they want to keep their job or if they want to have a career in and no receptionist and no, and you know, no assistant coach, the list goes on. And so you're right. Like the pass down effect because of the power dynamic, particularly of the, the head coach, or let's just call it the, the executive, you know, GM, a president is remarkable in just that simple behavior and, and thinking of yourself like that. So um, yeah, it's not just the impact on the team. It's not just the impact on you, your staff follow you. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Right. I mean, culture is, is hard won and easily lost. And, and so if you are sort of like defying, you know, indirectly defying what you say is important by, you know, undermining your staff or not doing something yourself that you're telling other people to do, right. Those, those things are noticeable right? And staff notice it and players notice it. And so I love this point because it is so important for, it's a responsibility, I Mm -hmm. think, of high level leadership to think about what you are doing and what that's communicating to the people around you. And sometimes you do have to give like explicit verbal permission, right? Sometimes people really don't know that it's okay to go home. Um, and, And that can be a challenge in and of itself, right? But I think a lot of it does start with you know, what's the message the coach is saying about sending about how important it is to to be with family or what's the message that the president is sending about what it means to be fully committed to the team and be fully committed to a family, right? Those those things matter, right? And they matter for people's performance. It's not just some like pie in the sky kind of um, mushy, gooey, like everyone's loved and sports is just warm and fuzzy and wonderful and we're all going to have the best life. Like, Sports is hard, right? And, and what we do is hard work, but it, it is okay to fill up somewhere outside of work and bring that energy back with you. And it's important to do that. And if you do that consistently, you might perform better, right? All the way from the intern to the, to the highest level executive. And I think that messaging is just it's just critical and it's, it's tough, right? It's tough to um, leave work sometimes, particularly when things are more challenging, right? You've gone on a little bit of a losing streak. Sometimes it can be hard to, to feel okay to walk away, but in the long run, you know, that stuff makes a really big difference for how people feel about where they work, for how people perform at work. Um, And those things do trickle down to players, right? And, And players pick up on that messaging too. And if that's ultimately, you know, who we're serving and who we're trying to develop, you know, if we're telling players um, that it's really important that they, um, you know, get on a healthy diet plan and, and you know, develop professionally in their eating habits while we're smashing a Big Mac, I, I mean, that's not going to resonate super well. Um, and the same thing goes, you know, with, with staff. And so I think, I think that sort of like responsibility as a model is really, really important for high-performing organizations. And it's hard. That's a really hard responsibility to take on. Um, but I think it's it's one of the unwritten responsibilities that probably head coaches don't know they're walking into when they take over. Yeah, that's not in the education. And then if you spend any amount of time observing society or the news, you might have picked up on a trend of, uh, I'm, I'm using inverted commas here, but this generation Uh, more than willing to call bullshit on people who aren't being accountable for their actions or saying one thing and and not behaving the way that they are saying. So if there's one thing that I would point to from this generation, it's that if you're not, if you're going to coach in maybe a bit more of a, a, I hate the term old school, but an old school way of I'm going to tell you what to do. I don't need to do it but you guys need to do it because you're the team and I'm the coach. I don't think you're setting yourself up for a very long career with this generation of, of athletes that are coming through that are, like you said, really hella smart, really hella socially competent and, uh, and also have a voice where they will say you're full of shit and I'm going to tell people that you're full of shit because you've broken our social contract too many yeah. times. 
100%. I, I have to know, what do you prefer to the term old school? I don't know. I don't know. We what, can work what, on that. What about it do you dislike? <laughs> I think it comes with connotations because because there is a lot of good things that come from, you know, a lot of the, the core principles that are actually revisiting now are old. And, and so what I don't want us to do is say old is bad and new is rethought and fully conceptualized. Actually, what we're doing yeah. is we're just going back to the old school, grabbing the really, really impactful things and bringing them into the new world. And so, you know, you can look at literally everything. Like we think yoga and mindfulness are new. They're thousands of years old, yeah. mate. Like yeah, yeah, they're new yeah. in the West. They're new in the West. <laughs> not, like, this is some of the oldest school stuff you've got. Yeah. Um, in the world. So yeah, that, that's kind of my thinking around it is I don't want us to just go bad. There's a lot of really solid principles that we're, we're dragging back into our lives that are really helpful and they come from really old stuff. hundred percent. I'm sure we could go on a whole cultural narrative tangent here about old versus new <laughs> and gen generational differences and all these other things, but I, I don't think that would serve us well. <laughs> I was, I touched on social media. Where can people find you and follow you on social media? Because you share a lot, you share your thoughts and, and, you know, if you've read an interesting article and, and you extrapolate on your thoughts, which I really appreciate because it's so easy to just kind of post it and say, Oh, this was cool. But you actually go through and, you know, post threads and, and new ideas that you, you bring together. So where can people find you? Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and yeah, I try to, try to share, right? Try to make it meaningful and, and give people something that they can apply. And, um, you know, it's a way for me to learn too. So I, I welcome people's feedback. So it's at Twitter, it's at Alex Auerbach PhD is my main social account. Uh, I don't, don't Facebook and don't Instagram at a high level. So uh, Twitter is the best place, but happy to connect there. Hey, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Uh, I know I'll probably see you on the weekend, but we can pretend for the audience that we, we, <laughs> we're going to close Perfect. this conversation. But I know that <laughs> I know we're just going to continue uh, probably via text. So <laughs> thanks yeah. for coming on, man. This has been awesome. And uh, yeah, long overdue, but I'm glad we got to do it. Pleasure is mine. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Don't forget to visit codyroyal.com forward slash unfair, codyroyal.com forward slash unfair to be the first to know about the launch of the Unfair Advantage newsletter. It's going to be a game changer. See you next time.